Welcome to Risk Watch, a podcast brought to you by VCheck Global that sheds light on emerging compliance and due diligence issues affecting private market investors, financial institutions, and global corporations. I'm your host, Alex Soren. On this episode of the podcast, Ann Sultan Alexandra Bolio of the law firm Miller & Chevalier came on the show to discuss recent enforcement developments and trends concerning the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Ann is a partner and vice chair of the international department at the firm and provides public companies and private organizations with advice on a wide range of enforcement, ethics, and compliance topics. Alexandra is an associate at the firm and focuses her practice on the design and implementation of risk-based corporate compliance programs and internal and government investigations. You can find a link in the show notes to their bios as well as the FCPA summer review. As always, if you enjoy the show, please give us a like and share. I had a great time talking with both Ann and Alex and I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, we're live. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. So in the FCPA summer review that your firm put out, you noted that there's been a drop in FCPA enforcement actions compared to prior years, and that that's somewhat surprising given DOJ statements from from 2022. So I wanted to get y'all's take on that. Yeah, that's a great point. So there's no question that FCPA cases that have publicly settled have decreased since 2019. We saw a dramatic drop off. In 2019, there were 42 settlements. And then in 2020, there were only 25. So it almost halved. And then in 2021 and 2022, we've seen 11 and 16 settlements respectively. So very, very low numbers. We're currently at seven settlements for 2023. There's potentially room still for growth before the end of the year. And initially, it looked like the COVID-19 pandemic was really to blame. And, And I'm sure that that's part of the story. But it's also been clear that the DOJ has been focused on its policy developments over the last year. And there were a few policies that were announced last spring. What we have less visibility into is one, closed actions that haven't been publicized, and two, the levels of ongoing investigations. There are cases that close without any announcements of declinations. So that's all happening behind the scenes. And it's hard to tell how busy DOJ is on matters that eventually get closed quietly. In addition, we do keep hearing from the DOJ about their pipeline of cases, as you noted. So it could be that there are significant cases in the work that will indeed see settling publicly soon. That's still an unknown for sure. And it's also important to remember that these complex FCPA cases, they really take years to develop and settle. And FCPA prosecution was not a priority during the Trump administration. So what we may be seeing now is kind of the effect of that prior policy of not vigorously enforcing these cases. So we'll see how it plays out. That's a really good point. But I also wanted to ask if any of this could be influenced as a result of improved compliance programs at companies in the U.S., Because as you note, these things take a long time to prosecute. But when you look at at these enforcement actions, a lot of them involve events that go back 10 years or more. And I guess I'm wondering, from what you guys see from companies that that you work with, are companies actively improving their compliance programs? And does that have an effect on the drop in enforcement actions? It's possible that improved compliance programs may be having an effect on the drop in enforcement. But it's unlikely this is really driving the reduced enforcement rates. Certainly, as FCPA enforcement continues, more and more companies are implementing compliance programs and improving on the programs that they already have in place. But at the same time, bribery schemes can often be creative, and even the best compliance programs won't prevent all corruption from occurring, though they may lead to more disclosures and faster remediation that limits the risk of recurrence. 
the DOJ has suggested that the frequency of voluntary self-disclosures has actually increased in recent months, and that's more likely to be the result of improved programs and incentives for disclosure as well. Mm -hmm. So over the years, it seems that the DOJ hasn't really come out with very prescriptive guidance on what's expected of companies' compliance and due diligence programs. From everything I see, it seems that it's much more of a best effort approach that's recommended for different components of, of compliance. I'm wondering how you all see that has been received by companies. Does it leave them in a tough spot? How do they take that guidance? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think what we see from the DOJ is a bit more than guidance, but their approach, and on this I happen to agree with DOJ, is that there is no one-size-fits-all for compliance programs. So their expectation and understanding is that each company is different, that a compliance program has to be designed to suit the particular company that's implementing it. And DOJ, to that effect, has outlined general expectations for compliance programs. Though, again, you're correct that it's not detailed, but while while compliance programs do require tailoring, companies can use the guidance from DOJ to ensure that they implement the compliance programs that incorporate all of the requisite elements and take into account relevant considerations as outlined by DOJ and as necessary for their business and their processes and their industries and how they work. So this means that companies certainly need to expend more effort in order to evaluate their own operations and specific risk profile in order to develop a compliance program, right? They can't just take this kind of out of the box solution where they have 10 policies and they set up a couple of people to execute them. So it's a much more involved effort, but it also means that it gives the opportunity for companies to explain to the DOJ if they need to why they've made certain choices and not others and to educate the DOJ on the particularities of their own business. So to that end, I think the current approach leads to compliance programs that are both substantively better and also provide companies with the opportunity to tailor them to their own business needs. What advice would you give a company that doesn't really have a compliance program in place, but they have a large third-party population, they know they need to do something, and where do they start? Definitely start with a risk assessment. They need to go out and make sure that the right people within their compliance or legal function understand how the business is structured, what their key areas of risk are, and then start mapping that to where they have controls in place, where they might need more controls in place, where they need to beef up their processes in order to mitigate the highest level risk. That's helpful. So as the firm noted in the review analysis that was done, and at a more granular level with the Franks International investigation that was resolved in April, the oil and gas sector remains a high area of risk. Can you touch on why oil and gas continues to be a high risk sector for bribery and corruption? Yeah, it's an interesting observation. We certainly have seen higher FCPA enforcement in the extractives industry, oil and gas sectors. It's difficult to say exactly why the enforcement is higher, but there certainly are significant bribery and corruption risks in that industry. First, I think it's important to note that the industry is highly regulated, meaning there is ample opportunity for interaction with foreign government officials at all levels. The extractive industry, by definition, deals with the country's natural resources. So to engage in the extraction of those resources, companies need to obtain required permits and licenses. 
ensure their operations comply with environmental rules, which requires going through various government processes, state ownership of resources and assets, including through state-controlled companies is also common in the extractives industry. And that presents another opportunity for interacting with government officials that you may not see as commonly in other industries. Another point to make is that projects in the extractives industry are often worth large amounts of money and tend to involve a bidding process. And when the value of a project is so high, potentially gauging in bribery may seem like a minor cost necessary to secure a large reward. And further, these projects involve the submission of bids, and that's another opportunity for bribery to occur. The last point I'll make is that extractives projects can be very complex and are often based in countries where there is less developed approaches to managing government anti-corruption and compliance, which can result in companies needing business partners to assist with certain aspects of their operations. And each business partner the company works with can create liability for the company as well if they engage in corrupt activities. Right. So on that point of business partners and essentially what you see in a lot of these cases are third-party agents that end up being the ones who commit the wrongdoing, um, either on their own or with knowledge of of the company in certain circumstances. When it comes to working with third-party agents overseas, what are the risk indicators that companies should be looking for when they're vetting those third parties? So I think it depends on the type of third party, the type of industry, and where they're working. But I would say at a very high level, right? you want to make sure that the third party is actually equipped to help you substantively and that they're not just being retained because they're the brother, cousin, sister, family member of a government official or even the neighbor or former colleague of a government official. So you don't want to be paying somebody for their connections. You want to be paying for their expertise. You want to make sure that they have a good reputation in the market. Often companies will ask the third parties to sign up to their own codes of conduct and anti-bribery and anti-corruption clauses just to ensure that the company is well protected in case anything does go wrong. And you want to make sure that there's really nothing improper in the background of the third party, because even if it's an unrelated issue, like some sort of legal trouble that seems to be outside the scope of the particular engagement, you know, depending on what is in that history can create a lot of reputational risk for the company. And so at least you should be aware of what those potential problem areas are so that you can prepare in case things go south. Right. And you touched on a good point with that first step being, are they a politically exposed person? Do they have any exposure to to the government? Which, from my experience, that's red flag number one, right? Probably shouldn't be engaging with them. I know it it differs from country to country because sometimes in certain countries, a lot of people are politically exposed, but it isn't necessarily an adverse thing, just something that needs to be approached carefully. And that stuff can be handled at that high level screening point if you're using like a database solution. But the other items you touched on really come down to what we would call enhanced due diligence. So a deeper dive into the background, the past performance, the track record of that third party. How hard is it, do you, from your experience working with companies that have global operations, how hard is it for them to really understand that enhanced due diligence process and you know wrap their, their minds around the necessity of that and, and taking it beyond a service level screening? I think the most sophisticated companies are well aware and have a great understanding of the process. It's more often you know, the smaller companies who maybe aren't used to international operations and are just getting started where the education mostly happens. 
But the large, sophisticated players, they understand the nuances, they understand the details, and very importantly, they also understand that the results of that type of complex screening is not going to be a yes or no decision for them of you can or cannot do business. What it does is it leads to a more complicated and complex discussion of these are the risks and these are potential ways that we can mitigate some or all of the risks. And then a decision actually needs to be made based on all of the analysis that's been done. So following up on that, how important is it that companies have an audit trail showing that one, they, they have a program in place. Two, they conducted a screening. Three, based off the results of that screening, they then went and conducted due diligence. Sure. I mean, I think it's always important to have records of the results and why you're conducting the screenings that you're conducting. And it certainly helps to you know memorialize, should questions ever arise, why you maybe took a closer look at a certain party, the fact that you did take a closer look, if you know any concerns arise in the future. So definitely keeping your documentation up to date and thorough is very important for the process. Alex, you touched on a point earlier just on the difficulty of navigating regulated industries and also industries overseas where the entity, whether it's like a hospital or other other company, is going to be have some form of government ownership because employees of those entities could be considered government officials, and um, that opens up a whole can of worms. But that kind of goes into the Phillips settlement that happened back in May, where they settled FCPA accounting provision charges, and this kind of dovetails into the topic of China, which I wanted to talk with you all about. So, you know, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how you view third party risk evolving in China, particularly as that jurisdiction is becoming more and more opaque and as the U.S. and China seem to continue drifting farther apart. Yeah, the jurisdiction is certainly becoming more opaque from a due diligence perspective, but overall we haven't seen a significant change in the actual risk that's associated with dealing with the partners in China, just more difficulty in terms of finding out information about them. We know that the Chinese government has expressed an interest itself in combating corruption that largely aligns with similar U.S. priorities. And we understand there's an increased emphasis because of that on anti-corruption compliance within China, even within state-owned entities. There continues to be anti-corruption enforcement within China by Chinese authorities against both local and foreign companies. And in particular, we understand there's ongoing anti-corruption enforcement campaign focused in China on the life sciences sector, So that has all been interesting developments to watch. Um, We'll continue to watch the space. But as you mentioned, yes, conducting due diligence on China-based partners and engaging in investigations within China has become much more challenging. In some cases, it's become more difficult to conduct due diligence on the entities, particularly those that have any sort of state-owned Nexus, or if they operate in sensitive industries like technology, there are also data privacy and data transfer issues, which make it difficult to get information out of China. And lastly, the political rift that you alluded to, it certainly seems to be contributing on a macro level in terms of how hard it is for American companies to do business in China. Though from a Chinese messaging perspective, we've heard that foreign direct investment remains very important in the region and they don't want to jeopardize that. But we'll see how that actually plays out and if there will be longer term effects on particular risk posed by doing business with third parties in China. That's helpful to know. So to wrap up here, and this dovetails nicely into your last point, I want to talk about nearshoring. So whether it's because of China or just general global instability and supply chains, 
we're hearing a lot about companies nearshoring their supply chains, bringing them closer to home. I want to hear what, what you all are seeing on that end and also how you're advising companies to remain vigilant with their anti-bribery programs, even as they're moving their supply chains closer to home base. Yeah, so this is an interesting trend of this moving supply chains closer to home. And the important point, just to make at the outset, is that there is still a potential to run afoul of the FCPA, even if you've moved your operations, say, to Mexico from China. Anytime a company is operating or interacting with a foreign jurisdiction, general FCPA concerns remain the same. In addition, companies should be cognizant of the fact that different countries can present different corruption risks. So just becoming familiar with the new environment that they may be operating in is important. If a company is moving operations to another country, there may be different government touch points. Maybe those touch points operate a little differently. Maybe there are different government actors involved. And the company just needs to be aware of those and make sure they have an understanding of the environment that they're operating within. Those differences still offer opportunities for missteps and companies just generally need to remain vigilant with their anti-corruption efforts, regardless of where they're operating. Great. Well, look, I appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to me. This has been really interesting. And for anyone interested in getting in touch with both of you, there's links in the show notes to your bios, as well as the SCPA summer review that the firm put out. But once again, thanks so much and um, look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you.